My racing career isn't just about me. It's about the team, the fans, the sponsors, the families, the tracks, the whole sport. Join us over the next five months on the Junior Nation Appreciation Tour, where we show appreciation to where it's owed. This is Dale Jr., and you're listening to Dirty Mo' Radio. I was happy for Dad after it was over and he had won, but I don't like to finish second. This is the Daytona 500, and thank God! It's an accomplishment that we'll not forget. There's a lot of satisfaction in winning the championship. Jeff Gordon out of turn number four. He will lay claim to his first ever Winston Cup victory, and it comes in the Coca-Cola 600. Rick Hendrick, uh, hope I'm with you for a long time. At the end of the day, you still want to see a lot of people in those stands. I am a history. (laughs) Back in the day, with Steve Richards and Ron LeMasters. NASCAR history is a rich tapestry of speed, personality, and great racing. Here at Back in the Day, we celebrate that history by keeping it alive, just like Dale Earnhardt Jr. did on the original TV show. We'll take important dates, races, and trends in NASCAR and pass them along to you. Here comes Back in the Day from the Exalta Studio inside Junior Motorsports. Darlington Raceway sprang into being as the brainchild of former racer Harold Brazington, who took one look at the crowds at the 1948 Indianapolis 500 and thought to himself that he could do the same thing Tony Holman did at Indy, only in the bucolic setting of Darlington, South Carolina. As it turned out, he almost got it done. He bought 70 acres of cotton and peanut farmland and set about building the 1.366-mile speedway, which took about a year. One caveat, which turned out to be perhaps a defining attribute of Darlington's layout, was the unique egg-shaped contour of the track. It seems Sherman Ramsey sold the land to Brazington on the condition that he not disturb his minnow pond, which is located outside of what was then Turn 3 and is now Turn 1. A former competitor of NASCAR's Bill France Sr. during his driving days at the old beach course, Brazington inked a deal for a 500-mile race on the completed speedway on Labor Day weekend 1950. The race featured a purse of $25,000, which was astronomical for the day, and it drew 80 entries, 75 of which started the race. One wrinkle that raised eyebrows was the fact that the starting field took the green flag in 25 identical rows of three cars. That's 14 more than the legendary Indy 500, and it's a lot of cars. The race was won by Johnny Mance in a car owned by France. From there, the legend of Darlington grew apace. Labeled the track too tough to tame, or the lady in black, Darlington quickly came to epitomize toughness and grit and pretty good racing. Dale Earnhardt Jr. It is probably the most grueling, gritty, hard-nosed racetrack that we run on on the circuit. Very tough, very challenging for a driver. Two opposite corners of each other, very differently driven. The surface, of course, very abrasive, uses the tires immediately. Definitely driver comes into play and uh, takes a lot of guts, a lot of nerves. Many spectacular moments have taken place at Darlington, such as the Winston Million victories by Bill Elliott and Jeff Gordon. Bill Elliott is racing into the record books. Bill Elliott is going toward immortality. Bill Elliott gets the checkered flag. Bill Elliott has won an additional $1 million in 1985. Here he comes off of the fourth corner. Jeff Burton will make a challenge off the corner onto the straightaway. And then there was Regan Smith's upset victory in 2011 
where he held off Carl Edwards in a green-white checker finish. Man, this is this is neat. This is special. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to win this race. I think, but. Uh, I'm definitely certainly not going to uh, not going to tell him to take it back by any means. We earned it. And man, I just I really felt like that was our race to win. We we had it uh, we had a great lead that we that we earned all night. And uh, as unfortunate, it got uh, we had that yellow. But Regan is a is a heck of a guy, and that's NASCAR racing. And uh, as upset as I am to have lost that race, I'm happy for for Regan and his accomplishment. But uh, man, I'll I'll run that one back a few times in my head. We were standing there looking at the names and the faces on the trophy, and. You know, you just look at it and you think, well, my, my face is going to be right there next to these guys, and it's going to be there forever. You know, you can't change that, and it certainly, uh, you know, means a lot to me. And then there was the closest finish in NASCAR history, which took place in 2003 between eventual winner Ricky Craven and eventual series champion Kurt Busch. It was a thrilling, door-banging battle that saw Craven win by the indescribably tiny margin of two thousandths of a second. It's a race that I'll appreciate forever. It, uh Winning at Darlington was important to me personally, and that uh, that's what I took away from it that day. But it was later in the week that I realized, you know, with the finish being what it was, that it was even a bit extra special. And uh, that car ran so well through turns three and four. And Kurt actually could match me through turns one and two, but didn't have the speed through the exit of uh, four. And, and, and that's what we worked toward. And when we got to the white flag, I had a chance to uh, attempt to pass Kurt in turns one and two, but pretty much knew that uh, that didn't work two laps earlier and nearly ended in disaster. So uh, as we went into three, I, I rolled into the corner on the high side. I, I don't know if Kurt lost me in his mirror or he just busy driving the heck out of his car, but, but he got some wheel spin. And when I saw his car or him going back to the gas and him getting some wheel spin, I immediately went to the bottom and uh, was able to get beside him and then all hell broke loose. It was a, <laughs> it was a great last four or 500 yards. Just uh, the competition between two drivers like that, to go out there and lay it all out on the line and to smile about it afterwards and shake one another's hand, it was, it was a great achievement to finish second at Darlington for that matter. But uh, to, to pull off you know, the, the greatest finish in the history of our sport, it was something that where you, know, you, you just go to race your heart out and it ended up where a guy wanted to do the same back to you, so that's why it ended up so great. My thoughts were that we won it, and I was waiting for the call to come in from the crew chief, and, and he didn't know. And he's looking at the guys, and the guys were, were looking back at the, the camera, and obviously the timing and scoring came over and said that we had finished second, and we were somewhat in disbelief. You know, the first word was, was protest. But then uh, once we realized that, that the race was the way it was with us finishing second, it still was a, a great emotion. And, you know, I could do nothing but go and congratulate Ricky Craven on how much fun I actually just had and what that meant to me. Yeah, there's no question that uh, it would have been a hard race to lose. There's just so many ways to lose races, but to lose one by two thousandths of a second, that would have been disappointing. And, and But the flip side for us was winning by two thousandths of a second was extremely rewarding. Darlington's place in the NASCAR firmament was cemented long before 2003. The Southern 500 was one of the sport's crown jewels along with the Daytona 500 and the World 600 at Charlotte. It all harkens back to that initial start in 1950. What else was going on in 1950, you ask? If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked your cake. Hot-cha-do, hot-cha-do, hot-cha-do. Put on your scuffed bucks and letterman sweater and take a trip back with Back in the Day. 
Casey Stengel's Bombers met Eddie Sawyer's Swiss Kids, the Phils in the World Series. It was age versus youth and age one in a four-game sweep that saw Joe DiMaggio, Phil Rizzuto, and company proving they were champs in convincing style. The New York Yankees swept the Philadelphia Phillies to win their 13th World Series title. On June 25th, North Korea invaded South Korea. Overwhelmed by the sneak attack, the undermanned, poorly equipped Republic of Korea forces fought back with great courage. It was quickly evident, however, that they stood little chance against the invaders backed by Russian weapons. Two days later, the United States committed to the defense of South Korea and started sending troops. I, I always seem to be out of the country at Christmas time. Not that I have anything against Christmas personally, except it did so much for Crosby. <laughs> Bob Hope made his first appearance on television. Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoon first appeared in newspapers. And Paul Harvey... Hello, Americans, this is Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. ...began his national radio program. Among those who left us in 1950 were writer George Orwell of 1984 fame and playwright George Bernard Shaw, who wrote Pygmalion. Among those who were born that year were actors Bill Murray and John Candy, the legendary Dr. J, Julius Irving, and musicians Stevie Wonder and George Thorogood. Bad to the bone. Speaking of bad to the bone, that gets us back to Darlington and the Southern 500. As southern as grits and sweet tea, Darlington was the first super speedway in NASCAR. Though construction of Daytona International Speedway began in 1950, it was not completed until 1959. Until it was, Darlington was the biggest, baddest racetrack around, with the exception of Indianapolis, of course. Let's bring in Steve Richards, longtime broadcaster and pit reporter for the Performance Racing Network, as well as the producer of Back in the Day, Steve, Darlington's kind of NASCAR's version of Fenway Park, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Fenway Park, uh, Wrigley Field, any of the old ballparks. and It's a true throwback, and that's why we have Throwback Weekend now at Darlington with the, uh, the various paint schemes, and it's a, it's a fun place to be during the weekend, and it gives fans an extra uh, incentive to go, not only for the history, but also the, uh, the throwback paint schemes of their favorite drivers. Now, we're, we're kind of mature, Hmm, uh, say the least. Seasoned, I guess you'd say. <laughs> uh, and I can still kind of remember when some of those paint schemes were, were racing. Yeah, for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a lot different because the cars looked like cars. You know, Cuckoo Marlin, for instance, Sterling's father, mm -hmm. had a. it was almost a Coca-Cola scheme like Bobby Allison used to run. Right, but right. He had the number 14, and they switched some stuff so Coca-Cola wouldn't sue him and all that stuff. But it was a great throwback scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, the Wood Brothers, iconic. Petty's, iconic. Mm -hmm. uh, Dale Earnhardt's Wrangler, iconic. Right, right. I have a question about what's going to be iconic later. Mm -hmm. Like Jimmy Johnson's scheme, Jeff sure. Gordon's scheme, Tony Stewart. You know, but I mean, really, I think that the throwback weekend really does a good thing for Darlington because it harkens back to that history. And I think it's one thing we lose a little bit in our sport. I hope that it's an annual thing. You know, they've got these years and, and uh, they're, they're focusing on these, these per, you know, little five-year periods. But I hope that Darlington, you know, for the next however many years NASCAR's around is the throwback weekend and the opportunity for drivers and teams and owners and everybody and the fans as well to get creative. And everybody has an, a different interpretation on what's, what's history, what's old, and what's vintage. So, you know, it's fun that it's open and it's, it's, it's up to each individual how they want to celebrate it. 
it's it was important to start it and be doing it and now it's just a celebration it's more it's it's more it's become more fun you know and it's 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 exciting actually seriously uh enjoyable to get there and walk through the garage and you know take a look around and see what everybody's got going on and uh you know hopefully that's something that's happening for a really really long time at darlington's i think it's something they should embrace they should embrace the the retro and throwback weekend and make it their own and you know i think it'd be cool well baseball and football do the same thing mm-hmm. but that's more that's just purely to my mind revenue generation oh yeah and, yeah and i think this is more of a heartfelt hey you know it wasn't always uh we have injectors now and fan amenities it's a racetrack by golly and we're gonna have fun we're gonna watch the racing that's what we're here for yeah but they will sell a few die casts. they will <laughs> yes they will yeah i'm not saying it's completely not for profit but right but you know die cast is one thing but but completely selling out your sport i don't think is is what we're doing here kevin harvick said that he definitely gets a sense of history when he walks into that racetrack darlington is is something that's um you know is so much a part of our sport and and so so deeply entrenched in, in nascar racing that it'd be hard to, to ever see nascar not going to darlington so um i do respect the the history for uh for darlington well you know harvick is is sort of a student of history and, and he's made a little bit of it himself right i, right. I think richard childress his former car owner I mean, he, he kind of got his start at Darlington and Rockingham and, you know, places like that when he started running uh, what was then the Grand National Series. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it means a lot to guys like Leonard Wood and Glenn Wood and, and the Petties and, and all the people who made the sport great to begin with, I think. Well, you know, when I was uh, doing some research for our piece this weekend, I did find some interesting Darlington stories Ooh. along the line. And we all know, if you're a race fan, that David Pearson was – the king of Darlington. Right. He won how many times there? Ten. Ten times. But it didn't go right all the time. There was one time he was driving for the Wood Brothers, and we all know how great the Wood Brothers pit stops were, but there was a little lack of communication here back in the 70s where the tires came off. Really? After a pit stop. Those are sort of necessary. Uh, yeah, here, here's how David described it. Well, they knew, and I knew, uh, they was told me on radio that I had to beat Darrell out, you know. And so when we come in and made a pit stop, uh, they changed the right side, and uh, and when they drop that jack, that's a signal for me to go. And they didn't tell me they was going to change four tires. And so Glenn was up there cleaning the windshield, and they squatted down and took the tires loose on this side. You know, you could do it back then. And I didn't see the guys there, you know, taking the tires off because Glenn was standing there wiping the windshield, and I couldn't see him. And so... When he dropped the jack over there, I took off. And then he come off down at the end of the pit road. Somebody said that story was that you thought they said go when they'd said whoa. Was no. there anything to that? Well, they probably did, but I was already on my way <laughs> then. <get> too late. <laughs> yeah, it was too late. But right. a lot of people thought that's the reason we broke up, but that wasn't it. You know, okay. it was it was coming anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Pearson is one of a kind, and I got to spend some time with him during a Charlotte weekend, and he's just, I mean... There is no pretense to the man. He is David Pearson, and that's all he'll ever be. Mm-hmm. And by golly, who wouldn't be, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. You talk about history and Darlington, and you mentioned in your, your monologue, your history lesson, Harold Brasington was the, the brainchild of Darlington, and most people believe that he should be already inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. What do you think? I think among many deserving candidates who are not already in, mm-hmm. I think he, he and uh, I think Clay Earls and, um, you know, some of the other guys who 
may not have had a, a on-track contribution to the sport, but you don't get on track unless you have tracks, and he built the iconic track in NASCAR. Well, Richard Petty agrees. To me, he's a Hall of Fame guy because he went out and took a chance, and once he did that, then NASCAR started growing. In other words, 1950, he took a chance and builds um, over a mile racetrack. Never, it was unheard of, run a 500-mile race. And you think he didn't do a heck of a gamble? You know I mean, but once everybody else seen that was the way to go, then, you know, you get Charlotte built, you get Daytona, you get Atlanta, you get. So if I was looking at history and looking at the Hall of Fame, I would look at people like that that really got it started more than the people that carried it on. You know, it's going to be a, a tough decision on the records. Then some of our records are different. So the first thing you know, if you're not careful, you're going to put personalities in. And that's not what you need in a Hall of Fame. You need the people that done the job. He is exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's good to be the king. Yeah. It's even good to be authenticated by the king, which I just was. <laughs> so, you know, I, I need that every now and again. Uh-huh. But, you know, I mean, you can have promoters, too. I mean, Humpy Wheeler, I think, by golly, deserves a spot in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that whole Burton Smith, um, Speedway Motorsports bunch, Eddie Gossage is the next, is the last great P.T. Barnum, you know. Right. And, he picked uh, up where Humpy left off exactly. pretty much. And, uh, and actually, I think he's he probably pushes the limits more than Humpy ever did. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, Humpy was a different generation. Well, you talk about promotion. Mm-hmm. Did you know that, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but every year Darlington brought in a driver to help sell tickets. Mm-hmm. They put the driver on the phone. The fans would call in. They wouldn't know who was on the other end of the line. They just figured it was a person selling them tickets. Right. Back in 2005, guess who was on the other end when this man called? Jimmy Johnson. No, even better. Who? Tony Stewart. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. In the short term, when I went over to the ticket office earlier, a guy ordered three tickets, and he's on the phone. I said, tell him he's going to order six, or we're going to take his credit card and get lunch on it today. (laughs) And it was really, the plan was really a good plan, realistically, right up to the point where he said he was a federal agent. (laughs) So... We decided we'll wait and use that line on the next customer. Doubling ticket sales. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll have it sold out in a couple weeks if they let me run the ticket counter for a while. That or we're all going to eat free for a while. Wait a minute, you guys are me to you eat free here anyway, so Uh. never mind. It's not going to (laughs) work. Tony knows as well. Yes, he does. And, and, you know, you've seen him. He's uh, he's sampled a buffet or two. Yeah, he has. You know? Yeah, Burger King was the sponsor for a while. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, and that actually is a very good deal. But but nowadays, with, with everybody's contract the way it is, you don't have a whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. You know, some of your up-and-coming drivers, some of your, you know, you're probably not going to catch Jimmy Johnson doing that. You're probably not going to catch, um, you know, a couple other guys doing it. But, you know, I think it would be worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, actually what would be really cool in the age of technology is to do a FaceTime. Hi, Jimmy Johnson here. How many tickets would you like? Well, there you, know? you go. Yeah. That's my uh, – look, it's patented as soon as we get this out. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I think of Darlington, I think of the Winston Million mm-hmm. as well because Bill Elliott and uh, Jeff Gordon were the only two guys to have won the Winston Million. And Gordon did it, what, in 1997? Yes. And I remember covering that race. I was in victory lane. And when they popped open the champagne bottles, mm-hmm. one of the corks, the cork that Jeff popped off the bottle, mm-hmm. landed in my lap. Oh, goodness. And I, you still have it, I don't you? I still have it. Hopefully you put it in the baggie. Uh, yeah. I mean, what would be funny is that I should go over and show it to Rick Hendrick and go, you know those bottles that you have in your uh, Hendrick Hall of Fame? They're missing. One of them is missing a, 
a cork. A cork. And this is it. So here it is. Would you like to have it back? That's right. <laughs> I think he'd, he'd appreciate that, too. But they had that uh, program from uh, 1985 to 1997, and then it went into, morphed into the uh, Winston No Bull Five. Mm-hmm. There were several guys that won a $100,000 bonus during those Winston Million years. Dale Earnhardt. Uh, Dale Earnhardt won. Harry Gant, Davey mm-hmm. Allison. Um, you know, they all won. Daryl Waltrip won 100000 mm-hmm. They didn't win three of the four, but they uh, managed to win a $100,000 bonus. Man, when Bill did it, though, it was, it was news for weeks. It was the first year. Yeah. 1985. He won Daytona. He won Talladega and Darlington, and Daryl Waltrip won Charlotte that year. Right. But Bill was still kind of, you know... <laughs> North Georgia to the bone mm-hmm. at that point. And mm-hmm. I think everybody, all the the New York media, the non-traditional NASCAR media, really fell in love with his accent. Right, right. Playing of it, he is. Wow. I, am, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really cool because that's about the time that NASCAR really started to ramp. Mm-hmm. Um, and the early 90s with the uh, the cart IRL feud is when it really took off. But but that was that sort of set the stage for them to take off like that, I think. Now, we all know that uh, Dale Earnhardt, could have won the 1990 Daytona 500 if it were not for him cutting down a tire. And Derek Cope winning. If, yeah. if Earnhardt would have won the Daytona 500, he would have won the Winston Million that year. Right. So that uh, loss hurt in a number of ways. Right. And, and you know, really, would have it would have changed the trajectory of history mm-hmm. simply because Dale would have won it in 1990. Right. And uh, it, it would have changed... It, he wouldn't have taken him eight more years to win the first one. Right. And only one. So. And also remember 1992, there was a Southern 500. It was cut short due to rain. Mm-hmm. Daryl Waltrip was leading the race. Right. Okay. He won the race. And Davey Allison would have had a chance to clinch the million had he won the race. He finished fifth. Now, if the rain had stopped and they could have dried the track, maybe Davey would have won. Who knows? Yeah. And I remember hearing this. Davey Allison and Daryl Waltrip sitting on the pit wall, one doing the rain dance, and one hoping it would clear up. I heard it thunder. Did you hear that? No. <laughs> Quick, we got to get out of here. A storm can, coming. I can hear it clearing up. <laughs> Listen to them clouds. Clear, I think there's a bad storm coming. Listen to them clouds leaving here. Somebody else has been over here sweating a little. I can only run 11 more laps, and then I got to come in. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kidding here. How do you I do that? I didn't want to tell him that because I didn't want to hurt. I didn't want to depress him. But you know, I can go maybe 11 more laps. <laughs> Why'd your face turn so red when you said that? <laughs> Somebody's not hey, telling the truth. Let's here. go down to Western Auto and buy some Haviland motor oil. That sounds good to me. <laughs> Call that sucker. Let's go home. I gotta get home and feed the baby. <laughs> I'm going to be doing the alligator here in a minute. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I told people several times, I didn't know at the time that was going to be the last race I'd win for a while, but I sure am glad I milked it the way I did. (laughs) You know, another thing that I think is really good about the Winston Million Mm -hmm. was both Elliot and Gordon won it when you could actually say the word Winston and not get spit at. That's right. You know, for somebody who's against tobacco. Yeah. And really, a lot of stuff has changed. Winston... Winston were master marketers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they knew exactly what their core audience was. They knew what it was it was about, what would appeal to them. Mm-hmm. This and they spread the wealth. Of course, after the decision that made them get out of the sport, mm-hmm. I mean, what what else could they do, right? Right, right. So you know, I miss Winston. I miss uh, actually, and this is heresy or kind of reverse heresy. I miss Marlboro because Marlboro did the same thing on the open wheel side. Yeah, they did. They were master marketers. Right. I wish other people would figure this out. 
because you know all these companies are not so dumb yeah. that they don't actually know what their audiences want, and they don't have to cheat to do it. I don't think. Well, Rick Hendrick knows what his audiences want, right? But did you know there was a time when Rick Hendrick actually snuck in to watch a Darlington race? He sneaked in. He, oh my goodness! He had to sneak in. It was either seventy-five or seventy-six. I was in Bennettsville, South Carolina, with a little Chevrolet dealership. And I drove over to Darlington and parked at the grandstands in the middle of the race and got up and walked in the stands didn't buy a ticket. Parked right under the stands. I was living about 20 miles away. And, uh, and I, don't remember, I don't remember who won the race that day. But uh, I never dreamed that I'd be involved in the sport like we are today. But, you know, I was, I was actually boat racing then. He owes them some money. That's right. Jim Hunter should have collected. That's right. At that point. Well, you know, I mean, look, if the race had already started and it was halfway over, okay. You mm-hmm. know, you're going to buy a Coke. You're going to buy – you're going to contribute. But um, really, it just – it shocks me that Rick Hendrick in 75 and 76 had to do that. Or maybe he just got off work. I don't know. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know – and knowing Rick, he probably parked out there with a uh, Bennettsville Chevrolet sign on the uh, car. More or less, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. Mr. Hendrick is – he knows what his audiences want. He's He's been a stalwart supporter of the sport. Penske, Hendrick, Joe Gibbs, those guys are all of a class of their own. Yeah, yeah. I was happy when they put lights in at Darlington. Me too. You know, it was a hot day, and it cooled things off quite a bit. It still can get pretty humid, Mm -hmm. but it's much better than running it under the heat of of the sun during the day. Labor Day weekend. Whose idea was that? Yeah, yeah. And the first one I saw at night was, I can't remember exactly when they put lights in, but I was at the 2003. 2005. 2005. I was at the 2003 when uh, Bush and Craven locked up in that thing. And it was it was actually kind of a cool day that day. Well, guess who else was happy that Darlington put up lights? Who was that? Your buddy, Tony Stewart. Yes. Yeah. I can promise you racing at night here in the spring is going to feel a lot better than in the middle of the summer. I normally felt like I was a Thanksgiving turkey and was looking on my body for that little red pill to stick out <laughs> telling me that it's time to take me out of the oven. So uh, racing at night here when it's cooler is definitely going to feel better for the drivers, and you won't see as many uh, people in the stands leaving looking like lobsters when they leave. So uh, I think we'll all benefit from it. Well, I can remember a Darlington night race where he wasn't real happy, even if because it was at night. Mm-hmm. He was uh, way loose and finally spun the car out. And I remember him radioing to Greg Zibidelli, his crew chief at the time, I want the track bar down as far as it goes, and when it gets all the way to the bottom, put six more rounds in. <laughs> so, and he was known to um, have a tirade now and again on the radio if he was displeased behind the wheel. Right, right. But uh, that that one stands out because I was too busy laughing to uh, actually write it down. You know, one one good thing about Darlington too is even though they switched ends, mm-hmm. because what's now turn one used to be turn three, and what's turn three is, used to be turn one. Um, it, it's really held true to its roots. Even to the, it doesn't have a, an underground tunnel. Mm-hmm. They come over the racetrack to get into the into the pits, and it's really they they still have some of the old signage on the road. I, I think one of the great things about it was it's held true to its roots. And and Harold Brazington could walk in there right now and <laughs> recognize the place. Let's yeah, put it that he way. He would. And and you know even it's, though it's changed some, yeah, but it's still recognizable, right? And and you know under Chris Browning they did a bunch of stuff in the middle there that that really uh, pepped up the infield, mm-hmm. which I thought was cool. Oh yeah, it looks good. But you know as far as the racing goes, you know there's really only one line. Even after they repaved it, mm-hmm. you got to run the top, and that's how you get the Darlington stripe. Yeah, yeah. Right? I don't hear a Daytona stripe or a <laughs> a Martinsville, you know whatever Martinsville Mark or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and speaking of Martinsville, if that's a finesse track, Darlington just bruises you to death. I mean, there's two different ends. You have to drive them differently. Mm-hmm. You have to race at – you go into turn one, and re- there's really about 15 feet where you can race mm-hmm. or else you're going to crash. Of course, Jeff Burton is a steward of NASCAR history, and uh, he pointed out that Darlington was not really designed for today's much faster race cars. The interesting thing is the track's designed to run about half the speed that we run on it. Our cars are going so fast anymore. They they make so much down for us, and, and our uh, engineers and crew chiefs have done such a good job of getting the most out of these cars that uh, they exceed the limit of what the racetrack was designed for. And then uh, the soft walls made the track narrow again. So... Uh, very, uh, very demanding racetrack, and, and the, tech, the new technology has actually made it more demanding. You know, he's got a good point. I saw a uh, something on YouTube that had Junior Johnson driving one of the old, bigger stock cars mm-hmm. around. The, it might even have been a convertible. I don't think it was a convertible. I think it was a like a 1952 something or other. Uh-huh. But he's around. He is flat out, and the only thing stopping him from going over the banking is a single strip of Armco guardrail. And can you imagine a 3,000, 30, or 4,000-pound car hitting that? It happened. It happened a lot. And uh, some of them made it over and some of them didn't. Exactly. I'm amazed a car did not wind up in... in, uh, The parking lot. In the parking lot or the minnow pond. Yeah. You know. But, you know, and and he's right. Because, you know, and it used to be the surface was so abrasive. Uh, Who was it? Sterling Marlin said you could put new tires on and they'd have two laps on them by the time you got to the end of pit road. <laughs> and it's true. But when they repaved it, it made it just really, really, really grippy and really, really fast. So in running at night, I think that's a perfect storm right there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> perfect storm. You remember the year I was down the, on turn one in the viewing platform, there was a swarm of palmetto bugs, and all the photographers uh, got a lot of... Uh, I Got a lot of smo- smudgies on there. I remember that. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah. And you never seen photographers move so fast. Really. Yeah, unless there was free food. <laughs> that's right. Well, I think they, <laughs> they did put out the buffet, the Bojangles buffet. The Bojangles at that's that right. point. That's right. But you know, Darlington is, and I hope it never changes because you know I, I'm sure it will at some point. But you know, it's nice to have that kind of bastion of the roots of your sport. Mm-hmm. The older I get, the more important that becomes. I, I feel. The Bastions. The Bastions, yes. yes. You know, this, this is what I know. This is what I like. Don't change it. So, <laughs> it's yeah. all a part of getting older. That's right. Get off my lawn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hear the music again. That's right. I do. Yeah. That's it for back in the day. Uh, I think it's time to go to Buzz. Oh, uh, you're right. Yeah, you know we're not what? done yet. We're not done. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's time for that time when Steve and I get embarrassed and, and we give prizes to people. And we show our lack of knowledge. Well, we have knowledge. It's just he's got more. Well, that's true. Yeah, you know, I, I don't feel bad. I mean, for laymen, we're pretty good. Yeah. This week's featured segment, as always, is called Beat the Buzzer. It's very simple. We've managed to entice NASCAR Hall of Fame historian and Mexican food aficionado Buzz McKim <laughs> <laughs> to join us each week for this segment. And as if that isn't enough, our listeners can win prizes, too. Prizes again. Prizes again. Every week. Well, every other week. Yeah. <laughs> Buzz, welcome to Back in the Day. Oh, thank you very much, gentlemen. I couldn't wait to get back here. Well, actually, you're not. You're actually traveling. So that's a good well, thing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, good point there. He took time <laughs> out from his vacation to uh, join us. That was very nice of you. That's right. But oh, I'm sure... no, no, no charge, buddy. Yeah, we get what we pay for. <laughs> there, that's exactly right. But you did take your, your knowledge with you, so I want to ask you this question first. Okay. How does Darlington keep doing what it does in terms of safeguarding the history of NASCAR? Isn't that amazing? It's really so. Well, you know, it's nice too. It's got such a, 
a rich, deep history, and uh, I think it just keeps building upon itself. And they do a pretty good job of, of making sure that, that none of that is lost. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, they try to keep it kind of like the, uh, uh, what would you say, the, uh, the the Fenway Park of NASCAR, more or less. They never went much for uh, a lot of fancy-schmancy upgrading, like everybody has. And uh, I think they might have put some sweets in, but it's kind of like your grandfather's racetrack. Right. I, I don't think they have an injector at uh, Darlington, yeah. do they? No. no. Unless it's a fuel injector. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll set this up for our listeners. Uh, the week before each episode, we put out the call for Junior Nation and Dirty Mo followers to take to our Twitter accounts at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio and post with the hashtag back in the day and tag with at Exalta. Of those, Buzz will represent one lucky fan and beat the buzzer against Steve and Ron, who are winless. We're 0 for, 0 for two, 17. 0 for 2017. Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if can. If Buzz gets them all right, uh, one lucky fan chosen randomly from that week's submitters will win a prize from either Dirty Mo Radio or Exalta. Perfect. This week, Buzz is playing for Tanya Batten. All right, Tanya. Congratulations. That's right. And here we go with the first question, Steve. Question number one. You ready, Buzz? Oh, you got it. All right. Who was the first driver to win multiple events at Darlington? You know, that's a really good question, and it's interesting that he inadvertently kind of took the wind out of the sales of the of the uh, Speedway. I mean, not sales of tickets, but the sales, the wind of the sales. Anyway, uh, Harold Brazington, who built the Speedway, he had this really, really gorgeous, cool trophy designed and, and uh, produced for the Speedway, and it was uh, going to be a perpetual trophy, much like the Borg Warner Trophy at Indianapolis. And um, the deal was it would only be given to the first driver who won three races at Darlington. And Brazington figured, oh man, I'll get a good decade's use out of this thing because there's no way anybody's going to win a bunch of races here. It's too difficult. Well, Herb Thomas won the Southern 500 in 1951, 54, and 55. So, you know, here he was, and, you know, the track was only five, uh, you know, going on the sixth year. And uh, the trophy, instead of being displayed at the Speedway, was uh, sitting handsomely on the trophy case of Herb Thomas in his house in Stanford, North Carolina. I think we just got a history lesson there. That's right. You know, <laughs> I, you, you don't mess with Buzz on stuff like that. Well, here, here's the thing, Buzz. I, I saw that trophy in Herb Thomas's house. Did you really? Yes, I interviewed Herb oh, Thomas. My. He mentioned he lived. Mm-hmm. He and his wife lived in Sanford, North Carolina. Yep. And when I was working right. when I was working in Raleigh, I actually went down, did a feature with him, saw a bunch of his trophies. He actually signed a picture that I still have. And uh, yeah, and she also his wife also gave me a couple of color slides that have never been seen Whoa. before of Herb and his uh, Hudson Hornet, I believe. Yes, on, that's on the, right. On the beach at Daytona with a trophy. Oh, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? That's awesome. And I'll tell you what, photos of Herb Stutzen are kind of rare because he was a teammate to Marshall Teague and everybody was shooting Teague stuff. And a lot of folks forgot about poor old Herb. So uh, you've got a pretty rare uh, couple of items. Well, actually, I think it, it was Teague and Thomas in the picture. On the, oh, beach, okay. on the beach yeah. at Daytona. But then the other one is a uh, a photo of Herb with uh, his Hudson Hornet and the car is all muddy. And he's uh, sticking his head out of the uh, driver's <laughs> side window and he signed it to me. So that's a, that's pretty cool. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's definitely a keeper. That's terrific. Yeah. All right. You ready for the next one? 
Oh, I can't wait. All right. Go ahead, Ron. Question number two. How many cars started the first Southern 500 and how many finished? Okay. Uh, the first part of the question, uh, they started 75 cars, hmm. which, you know, back then that was unbelievable. But, of course, you had a mile and a quarter to fill up, uh, you know, with, with cars. But, you know, what's interesting. It took them two weeks to qualify the field for that race. So they would qualify every day, and the top five fastest qualifiers of that day would make the race. So it took them two weeks wow. to qualify all the cars. Wow. And I don't know if that was a, a business deal where Brasington was milking <laughs> the ticket booth or what. A promoter? But, uh, I no. That was remarkable. All right, what's the second yeah. answer? What's, yeah, the, no. what's, what's the second part? Yeah, okay. The, all right, the second part. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there's a definitive number. Uh, some of the uh, uh, results of early races were, were pretty, uh, you know, in, in, incomplete. Uh, the most I've ever actually seen in print was 29 cars finished. But it, it could have been more than that. This is, you know, it, it's kind of all over the map there. But uh, from what I've been able to see, uh, 29 cars finished. And it, it may be wrong. It, might be one of them gray areas, you know, that we might have put that part of the question. Well, this is from racingreference.info, and okay. I, I counted 28, right. so I think that qualifies, mm -hmm. given the incompleteness of the mm -hmm. historical record. So he's right. Yeah. He's right, yes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe this. This is something. Okay. <laughs> All right. Question <laughs> yeah. number three. How many... Mm -hmm. Of the 400 laps, did winner Johnny Mance lead in 1950? That's the first year, of course, yeah. that they ran. Yeah, well, you know, everybody thought that the big, heavy, powerful cars were the way to go. You know, the, the Lincolns and the Cadillacs and all that. Well, they found out pretty quickly that was not the way to go. It was, it was eating up tires. Uh, the car that Johnny Mance drove was a little six-cylinder Plymouth Coupe that was used by um, members of the you know, Speedway and NASCAR and all that to, uh, to use for running back and forth, running errands for the Speedway in preparation for the race. Wow. So at the last minute, uh, they, they threw Johnny Mance in the car, and Johnny was a West Coast IndyCar driver. Didn't have you know, much stock car experience, but he brought with him some heavy-duty multiply truck tires, and he never changed a tire all day, and it was the tortoise and the hare kind of deal, where the powerful guys were blowing as many as 40 tires during the race. Some of the mechanics were running out in the infield, taking tires off of passengers' cars to put them on the race cars. But Johnny just went along slow and steady. He was one of the slowest qualifiers, but he ended up winning the race, and he actually led 351 of the 400 laps. How about that? There you go. Perfect. And once again, Buzz is perfect. So Tanya Batten wins a prize, <laughs> thanks to Buzz. And, okay, uh, Tanya, congratulations. Way to go. And what's going on at the Hall of Fame? Anything new? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we're, we're gearing up for a new major exhibit that we're going to be launching pretty soon. I, I didn't think it was going to be launched till about the end of the year, but I think it's getting closer to possibly September. Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about it next time we're uh, together. But okay. um, and, and, of course, we're out beating the bushes looking for items for our new class of inductees, and uh, they'll be uh, launched in January in our Hall of Honor. So uh, it's a pretty crazy time for us in the exhibits department. Well, we look forward to hearing about that, and, uh, and we'll uh, pick it up next time we have you on Back in the Day. Excellent. And I got to tell you about a new Mexican dish I just discovered, Ron. You're going to love it. Um, you know, I'll just uh, I'll go into detail next time, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, <laughs> Buzz. Bye.
that's it for this episode of Back in the Day. Thanks to Buzz McKim, our resident NASCAR guru, for playing along with us again. And keep an eye on at Exalta Racing and at Dirty Mo Radio for the opportunity to play along. Remember, history is made every day, so be a part of it with Back in the Day. Thanks for listening to Dirty Mo Radio. If you love Dale Jr., then Exalta Racing is your go-to social media account on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It brings you insider's info all weekend long on the 88 team. It's at Exalta Racing, a must-follow for any Dale Jr. fan.